Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And the guest that I have on today, he has kind of done it all. I actually had a really hard time coming up with a title for this episode because Matt Booth is his name. He has gone from a product developer to a designer to a full-time freelancer to launching his own brand. His career trajectory has spanned, I think, about 15 or 16 years, and he has done so many cool things that it was really hard for me to figure out what to title this. Um, but but the end portion of the interview, sort of the, the second half that he and I talk about is how he built his freelance career and how he used that money to fund launching his own brand, which is called both barrels and is a luggage and accessory brand. So we do talk a lot initially about his career as an employee and being a developer and a designer. And then in the second half, we get into the freelance and the launching his own brand type of stuff. So if that's what you're more interested in, you can skip to the second half. I personally think the whole conversation is very interesting. So, you know, you can also feel welcome to listen to the entire thing. Uh, but if that's what you're, you're jonesing for, then jump to about the middle portion of the interview. Um, All right, quick heads up. Now, we talk about some timelines in the interview, um, and we we recorded this in November of 2019, and it is August of 2020 that you are hearing this go live. Um, I typically do not record that much in advance, but full transparency, just to let you know why the dates are like almost a year apart, is because I uh, am, as I speak this right now, um, am pregnant and am trying to get ahead for maternity leave with the podcast. So I'm not trying to record these episodes with a newborn baby in the house. Um, so I'm, I'm doing my best to get some stuff done in advance and be able to take a really nice maternity leave to become a mom. And uh, yeah, that is why the record date is kind of excessively in advance. So I wanted to point out that quick note if you're thinking, wow, she really gets these done ahead of time. That's not always the case. Um, All right, let's move on. I always want to let you guys know uh, before we jump into the interview that SFD is way more than a podcast. Um, I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, I love your show. Like, what else is there? And there is so much more to Successful Fashion Designer than just the podcast. Yes, this is a big component, and I'm so thrilled to have you listening. But I also have tons of tutorials and templates and eBooks on things like Adobe Illustrator and tech packs and freelancing and your portfolio and landing your dream job. Way too much for me to list right here. 
here. So here's what I want to do. I want to make sure you get all of those resources that are super, super valuable to help you get ahead in your fashion career. And the best way to do that is to head on over to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Drop your information there and I will send you all of my best stuff absolutely free. Uh, if email is not your thing, you can also follow me on Instagram. I hang out there. That is at soheidi. Again, it's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I, like so, like sewing machine. So Heidi. Uh, all right. Uh, one last thing too, if you enjoy the successful fashion designer podcast, getting your five-star ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts and iTunes is really a tremendous help to the show. So if you can take 30 seconds to do that, we are super appreciative of every single review that we get. And, uh, again, it really does help the show grow and get new listeners. All right. Um, You can always access the show notes. Uh, I say this every time, but access the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening, uh, whether that is on the web or Stitcher or iTunes. They should just all be below the interview play link. And beyond that, we're now ready to dive into the interview with Matt. Welcome, Matt, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, Can you start out by introducing yourself to everyone and letting us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me on the show, Heidi. It's really nice to get involved. Um, so a bit about myself. I'm based in the UK, uh, in Manchester, uh, which is in the north, uh, where all the best people are. Um, <laughs> well, so is London. Um, uh, well, what have I done? I've been a designer for as long as I can remember, which is about 15 years, Um Prior to that, I went to university and studied product design. So that was um, the path to kind of fashion has been via designing things like fireplaces and toothbrushes and roadside seating and all kinds of weird business. Um, Wait, what's what's roadside seating? I know, right? Like benches at bus stops? (laughs) I mean, who even tries that? It was actually a, a, a very strangely put together like emergency seat that you would keep in the trunk of your car oh uh, so it was like a uh i don't know it was a wild idea that kind of uh, we had some legislation that came into into practice in the uk uh with traveling to europe about people being prepared for breakdown scenarios um because that's how exciting my life is <laughs> um <laughs> Um, yeah, it just kind of came out of that, and there was like a jacket that was part of the seat, and yeah, it was it was crazy. <laughs> it wasn't very good, but like it was very um, it was very bold, right? I was like, sure. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts, um, and and massively flawed uh, on <laughs> sort of on on reflection. A good yeah. idea, but like it probably would have taken five years to develop properly, rather than maybe six months yeah okay so it just didn't get the time or tlc that it needed oh Um, man it was wild (laughs) so you've been designing um and developing obscure things as well as fashion and you said you went to university did you go to university specifically for fashion no so my my passion um as a young student so if i go back to when i was about 14 uh, i was really interested in things like furniture um and the sort of the the kind of the design language that that was probably a bit more around things like interior design but I was also 
that also led me into uh, being interested in uh, like a personal kind of uh, path towards sports. So I'd played a lot of sport um, throughout my childhood um, and kind of young adulthood. Um, and I've ended up sort of combining my personal passion for, for sports and my kind of um, professional kind of training into a, into a career that's been focused around sportswear design for most of the last 10 years. Okay, so that's that's where you kickstarted your fashion career um, as a designer was within the sportswear category. It was, yeah, yeah. and it was a it was it was weird getting there because I I got there via um, via like a product design degree rather than a fashion design degree. Oh, um, so how do you think? How did that work out? How did you get that? Get your foot in the door for that? Oh man, I must have just interviewed really well. <laughs> I, I, I was like wildly unqualified, and I think I probably just had a had a reasonably good attitude and and had some transferable skills. And yeah, just I don't know. I was really passionate about the product itself, which which uh, the first kind of step in was through um, football or soccer apparel. Um, so that that was the first kind of step in, but yeah, I really remember being given that opportunity and thinking, like, "Holy mackerel, what have I what have I done? What have I signed up for here?" Yeah, like I imagine you didn't even really have a portfolio or anything to show. No, I, did, I didn't even know what a salesman sample was or anything. It was wow. it was mad. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a little bit wild, <laughs> um, but I think probably you know to to think about you know perhaps the people that are listening in. Um, you, you can legitimately start from any background and any experience as long as you've got that kind of passion and drive to to want to be involved and want to learn. Um, and, and clearly it does take opportunity coming the other way Yeah. with organisations who are open-minded to people who've got, you know, perhaps they're not completely the, you know, the the absolute fit in terms of, you know, a fashion design degree or, a you know, a... Um, I don't know, textiles background or whatever for clothing. Um, I know that a lot of uh, footwear designers particularly come from a product design background. Um, So it's not that big of a leap. It's just, yeah, when you're going into pure apparel without any knowledge of pattern cutting or, you know, fabric utilization or whatever. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, it was a tough school for a few years. Do you remember like how you even presented yourself initially to get the interview? Were you like, hey, I have this background, but I'm really interested in this company and this job and your brand because dot, dot, dot? Or like, how did you even pitch yourself from the get-go? Yeah, it was pretty much like that. It oh, was, okay. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty old school, really, um, you know, in terms of at that point, you know, I, was, I knew that I was interested in, in the sporting aspect of um, – of the job itself in terms of being connected to sports on a, uh, you know, a, a almost, you know, uh, inside out basis. So that was, that was brilliant. And at that time, the, the product development was quite, quite focused around players and athletes and things like that. So that gave me a, it gave me a bit of language, you know, to, to start talking with. And then I had to learn pretty much everything else from zero, um, which, you know, I'm really grateful to the, you know, there's a couple of senior developers who I'm very, very grateful to. And, and they, you know, they really kind of uh, stuck with me. Um, and probably, you know, I, I, I kind of owe a lot of 
my ability as a designer to my background as a developer. How is that? Well, I guess it's if you know how something's going to be made, it's a lot easier to design the start of it so that you're going to get something that you can produce. Yeah. Um, So I'd kind of had this weird path where uh, through university, um, everything was very creatively led, but there was no real production because, as you you can imagine, at university doing a product design degree, you're not going to open tooling for £100,000 worth of stuff to produce one toothbrush for it. Right. Um, You know, it's, it's just not the same, whereas I guess the the reality of then what I was able to learn commercially through uh, the sportswear sort of journey meant that when I moved back into design with all of that development knowledge, it's kind of made me uh, designer 2.0 because I'm already talking the language of the developer. Yeah. So I've been really, I've been really lucky now to, to have those developers kind of on my team because I've, I've kind of been through the battles that they've been through. Okay. Yeah, that's a great perspective to bring to the table. Um, Now, for people out there listening who are still in the early stages or, you know, maybe haven't even gone to fashion school yet, can you give us a quick rundown what a product developer actually does? Yeah, they they kick the ass of the designer every minute (laughs) of every day. Uh, And I'm really happy to, like, stand behind that because they are, they bust you. Uh, But it's all with, like, good intentions I think those guys are, you know, they're, they're the reason that things happen in terms of, you know, uh, getting things off the page, uh, making things commercially viable, making them fit for people to wear and to love and to use and to benefit from. Uh, they also have to deal a lot with the factory liaison um, and all of the stuff to do with like grading and uh, fitting. And it's a, it's a really, really tough job. Um, and a lot of the best developers that I've worked with are the ones that collaborate most closely with the designers so that it's a genuine team effort where the designer is informed by um, like real-life restrictions, but the yeah. developer can also contribute creatively to the designer's vision because they work on slightly different timelines where the designer will be slightly ahead in terms of the critical path and the, the calendar uh, to the developer. Um, but I think most of the developers who are you know, really, really good and and continue to kind of reinvent themselves as well are the ones who are also connected to product innovation uh, and wanting that that creativity to to still be there as part of that role. Yeah. Like you said, I think there's a lot of opportunity not only for the developer and the designer to work collaboratively so the designer understands certain constraints, but also maybe so that the designer understands certain opportunities because there might be development opportunities that the designer's not aware of that the developer can bring to the table and that can open up a whole different creative channel. Absolutely. And and I think even, even sort of sharing ideas where perhaps a developer is working on a couple of projects with a couple of different designers you could start to share materials or trims or you know different different approaches to print execution and you know all that sort of stuff so i think the the the, the key part is that both parties both designer and developer have to be open-minded and not see it as being like a dictatorship and yeah. it is a partnership and i think you know from my experience it was at the early part of my career, it was very much a dictatorship, but it's supposed to be because you don't know anything. <laughs> so it's <laughs> certainly for me, I was like, hey, it's a good job I'm charming. Um, yeah. Because that, 
that was that was kind of the only thing I had, um, and I, I was, you know, usually kind of turn up for work something like on time. So that was, you know, I guess you just got to. Um, for, for me, I'd always I'd always kind of look back quite fondly on those on those experiences as a developer because I know how well it's informed me as a designer and probably as a business owner as well. Yeah. Okay, so you got your foot the door doing football slash soccer here in the U.S. Uh, as we call it. Um, yeah. Yep. And you learned a load, like boatloads, those first couple years co- coming in from a developer's yep. perspective. Now being a designer, and and then what happened? What did you continue to grow within that company in that role, or or what happened from there? Yeah. So there was I sort of moved into. Um, I'd moved into the sportswear role after doing about two and a half years previous to that role um, at a luggage company. So I've sort of jumped onto the fashion bit a little bit, but we could just rewind slightly. And The first job from university was designing and developing luggage. Um, so that was kind of a dual role. Um, and with that background and then moving through the apparel process, I went back after the apparel development job into... Uh, again, still in football slash soccer, um, moved into equipment and accessories design um, at a different company. Okay, but still in the same, still in the same sort of marketplace. Okay, but um, equipment versus like bags and stuff versus the actual apparel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it was it was bags, uh, footballs, um, shin guards, uh, goalkeeper gloves. Uh, knitted like knitted accessories so hats and scarves gloves um, just all sorts of yeah I, I don't really know how any of this has happened uh, when I look back but I've I've been involved with almost anything and everything from a product design and development point of view yeah why do you say you don't know how any of it has really happened I, I well it's it, it, it doesn't really make loads of sense uh, in terms of being a you know a linear or logical path. Um, I, I suppose what I've done is is tried to follow um, as my career's developed. Um, I've just tried to follow what I've been more naturally interested in through those learning experiences. Okay, and so, so it's, go ahead. It's changed a bit. Yeah. So, like, what prompted you to go from? apparel to the equipment side of things and again how did you do that jump did you just sort of apply and say hey I have this luggage background it's not in football slash soccer and I have this apparel background that is and so you know and I have this product development background combined I think I can do this job (laughs) yeah pretty much (laughs) um (laughs) yeah (laughs) I was also lucky that um a previous colleague that I worked with um, at the apparel job had moved into this other company um, but obviously wasn't in the like we didn't work together in terms of uh, within the apparel team because he was already in the equipment team um, at the previous place so and I think we, we'd sort of spoken um, you know as, as people do around around big uh, big offices and things and I think he'd always been aware that I had an interest in uh, an interest and a background, you know, in 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 design, and and wanted to move away from development and more into the design uh, side of things again, because although although I've extolled the virtues of development, uh, the sort of 
more junior level, it is very admin heavy. Um, and there is a lot of sort of that, that process to go through, which had probably left me in a spot where I thought, well, I'm probably five years away from getting to where I would want to be um, in that development role in more of a product innovation sort of role. Um, and being sort of young and ambitious and probably a little bit reckless, that felt like a, a long time. Um, so I moved to, to kind of get back into the more purely creative um, space and also to kind of take on a new challenge after, I think it was perhaps about three years of apparel development, maybe three and a half years. Did you felt like, okay, I'm ready for the next thing to push myself a little further? I think so. And, and I guess the... The thing that's always repeated is that I've always I've always learned so much from all the businesses that I've been in. And yeah. I think it's really important if you're trying to create your own sort of path or, or whatever to um to try and learn from as many different models as possible. Um because you, you learn what's good, what's bad, you know, what's you know, uh, what what the pains of really big businesses can be and what the what the pains of really small businesses can be as well. Yeah. So, I think those things have been really helpful for me as I've moved further and further along in my career. So, um, spoiler alert for the listeners, uh, you do now have your own luggage and accessory brand called Both Barrels, and we'll get to that. But is this, um, you made the comment of you learn, you know, you just saw how much you were learning in each of these roles and each of these opportunities and you learned different things from, you know, big business versus small business. Was this something you strategically had in mind that you were thinking, I know I want to do this, but I want to learn from all these other people first and then I'm going to launch my own brand or did that kind of just come later naturally? Well, I think there's a bit of a meeting in the middle for those two points. I think I've always I'd always had that vision that I wanted to do something that was you know of my own making and and kind of my own vision about uh, design philosophy and you know my um, my skills and uh, my skills and experience had kind of led me to this point where I was I almost had all the had all the tools and all the bits but needed to kind of find a bit of uh, I guess courage and bravery to to step towards doing it because. It is it is quite risky uh, to to do those sorts of things. So, yeah. in the the strategy it, it sort of makes sense when you look backwards. But I, I I can really distinctly remember it at the time, not feeling like I had a strategy. Okay, <laughs> it was it was like the wild west. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, fair enough. Hindsight's clear, but in the moment, it was like, yeah, what's happening? Also, and I guess this is this is probably part of the personal point, is that I didn't have anything to lose particularly. You know, I, I'm I'm not um, I don't have a family and I'm not married and I don't have kids to take care of yeah. or any of those things. Yeah. So I've always thought that if I get it wrong and if I if I fall down, it's only going to be me that gets you know um, gets a bloody nose and and have to deal with the consequence of that. I think that, you know, if, if there's bigger things at stake, like um, the education of your children or the, or the roof over your head or whatever it is that's, that's too much, I think that can get in the way um, a little bit as well. And I didn't have any of that, and I still don't. So it's, um, yeah, every, everyone's got very different and unique circumstances, and I think it's really important to 
to know exactly what your circumstances are and what level of risk you're comfortable with. Yeah. And so for you, you didn't have those liabilities or responsibilities and overhead. Um, so it, it changed the risk factor for you. Completely. Yeah. And I guess it, it, it sort of means that um, although there's not very much control, there is lots of control. Um, it's quite a strange sort of paradox where, you know, I don't have somebody else who's, you know, going out to earn money to, to bring that in to support what I'm doing and all that sort of thing. I have to also go and do all of that as well. Yeah. Um, so that comes with a lot of, like, there's a lot of, lot of uh, challenges, certainly mentally, that, that come along with that. Yeah. Um, okay, so we can. I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that because I think it's a position that many listeners are in. Um, but before we get to that, you you then got this opportunity to do the uh, equi- the soccer slash football equipment, um, yep. and and then what came next after that? Because I know you you jumped from. I mean, I, the timeline that I kind of know was you know, working as a design or a designer and a developer for brands, then you did freelance, if not mistaken, then you launched your own collection. So where are we at in the timeline? Yeah, so um, in September this year, um, I will have been free. Uh, I was fr- uh, That was my fifth anniversary as a freelancer. Okay, so, so I I've just been... have to clarify because this is airing and in, in, uh, not super close to date recordings. That would be September 2019. Yeah. Would be five so years freelancing. Time, okay. Yeah, by the time it's out, that'll be maybe five and a half years. Or I don't, I don't really know where I'll be, but um, <laughs> who knows? Who who really knows? Um, and then I did... So uh, to get to the jump-off point for the self-employed freelancing, um, I'd, I'd got almost exactly 10 years of industry experience at that point. Okay. Um, all, of, all of which was... Uh, rooted within design and development departments. Um, so that was my major strength um, in terms of what I could uh, what I could do. And I could also, as a freelancer, approach clients who were in the apparel space, the equipment space, uh, the accessory space, and then uh, brand, just general kind of branding and brand space as well. Uh, okay. with like a bit of creative capacity for that. Okay. Um, so I've been freelancing for about a year to make sure that I could, you know, support myself and, and kind of, you know, put some put some money aside to, to start the brand with. And then the brand really started about a year after I started freelancing. Okay, so that would have been September 2015? Yes. Roughly? Okay. And then it... Uh, and then the whole brand, the the Both Barrels brand, launched in November 2016. Okay, gotcha, the actual launch. Okay, so let's, um, okay, good to have that, like, big picture overview. So um, in September 2014, when you went from working full-time in-house to freelancing, how did you kickstart that? Like, how were you getting clients and building that foundation and, um, finding brands that were work, letting you work remote and, and kind of, how did you navigate that whole space? Um, yeah, <laughs> it was another sort of, uh, kind of try and try and sort of see as I went along sort of process really. 
And because I'd worked within the sports industry for such a long time, I'd made quite a few contacts um, just through the fact that although it's a massive, wide-reaching um, sort of product area in terms of you know uh, customers and participation, actually the people involved in it are all, it's almost like a little village uh, where everybody kind of knows everybody else, which is brilliant because you end up, you know, moving on and doing things and people are kind of able to help or, you, you know, you've heard of a brand who, you know, might be might be needing a bit of help or there might be opportunities that come up. And for in my experience, um, starting on the freelance, it was just literally a case of knocking on as many doors as possible and, you know, presenting uh, a, a wide range of skills uh, to, to, to uh, either to brands or to uh, suppliers, and even in some cases to factories um, who you know were looking to do their own production of things and, and wanted things to look a bit more uh, well formed. So, what do you mean exactly by knocking on doors? Were you like making phone calls or sending emails, or how did you actually do that? Yeah, so there was. Uh, emails um, which usually get opened and answered by somebody who does not care about you um, which is, <laughs> or opened which is and deleted <laughs> yeah right or you you know you if you're a designer and you're talking the wrong language to somebody who works in accounts they're really not going to help you out so it's really important to try and get in touch with the people who can help you as quickly as possible. So either by, you know, digging around on, on things like LinkedIn to try and find uh, names of people who might be able to help you or, you know, or at least job titles or whatever else. And then, you know, trying to follow up with either phone calls or, you know, face-to-face uh, -face meetings. And for the first probably two, two and a half years of freelance, I spent almost all of my time out on the road you know, so I was a I was a remote worker, but I was working away a lot. What do you were you was that going on site to actually do the work, or was that going on site to actually try to negotiate and land the project? Yeah, it was it was pretty much a full time job doing both of those things. Um, so I guess you have to take on the role of like business development manager. Yes, so you, you have do. To spend a bit of time. Yeah trying to find people and you know, and that's all the time whilst you're doing the work um so it's pretty yeah it, it's pretty tough and i guess the you know the, at the initial part of freelancing you know there are a few a few things that you can do which work in your advantage which is you know if you're new and you're looking for for kind of new work you can offer uh, a slightly lower rate because you can say you know I, I i need to get this project on board so that i can keep going and you know, or I'm working with another client who might benefit from a partnership with you or, or something like that. And you just have to, I guess, try and find this entrepreneurial spirit, which I guess it doesn't come easily to, to many people. And it certainly doesn't come easily to me. And it's something that I have to work on, you know, every day um, because yeah. I, I don't identify as, a, as an entrepreneur. I identify as a, as a designer. Because that's what I do. Yeah, <laughs> um, but all of a sudden you're out there yeah. selling yourself, and you're you are yeah. your own business, and you're representing yourself. Absolutely, and and I think that the sort of the big brands and the, and the work that I've done in in those big organisations had really given me a level of confidence that you know I at least had a, a base level of skill that was you know uh, suitable. Um, so that was that was really good. But the rest of it, I've just had to learn. Um, 
and, and as part of what I do as a freelancer and as a business owner is I, I, I spend a bit of time talking at the uh, universities here in the northwest of England. So there's like, I've got partnerships with kind of three or four of those institutions now, which is to help encourage people with those types of skills because um, it's, it's so much about communication and, and getting on with people and also understanding when sometimes they don't need help. You know, and, and, and it doesn't matter if you really love their brand <laughs> and they don't need help, there's no fit, you know, so you have to move on and kind of take your medicine a little bit, which yeah. is, you know, it's not nice when you've spent a week going, okay, I've got this meeting with, you know, some amazing company that you think are, you know, the best thing ever. And they say, oh, really sorry, but there's, you know, there's no room at the end. So, it, yeah, it's it, there's a lot about um, persistence um, and, and also acceptance that sometimes things aren't going to be timed right, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, no, those are, I mean, I, I freelanced for many, many years, and I know those are some of the harsh realities of that career path. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. Um, so you said for the first about two and a half years, you spent a lot of time like knocking on doors, like physically going out there, you know, putting yourself out there in email, pitching, actually asking for the work. Uh, what happened after two and a half years that you didn't have to do that anymore? Or maybe less, uh, do, uh, do less of that? Yeah, I think, I think some of it was understanding um, which, uh, which work I found the most value in. Um, and that's not to say that uh, that's a money thing. That's actually a contribution thing. Um, I think some some projects you end up doing because it's money, um, and that's that's obviously a big part of things. But I've been really fortunate to get involved with projects that were a bit more meaningful by that point, and and that was satisfying me in a way that I was able to contribute to something a bit bigger, but also um, continue to develop the vision for both barrels which had taken a lot of, and it still continues to do so, it takes a lot of almost like spiritual energy. So if you're, if you're battling a client or a, or a brand or a, a series of internal decisions that are just giving you loads of bad vibes, it's actually not worth your while to take the money on those projects yep. because it's, it's, killing, it's absolutely killing your bigger vision. Um, so you would go home to you know, lots of negativity rather than going, oh, I need to do an hour on, you know, getting getting some Instagram stuff sorted or you don't, you you know, in, in my case, I would, uh, I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably um, eat something really unhealthy um, and <laughs> yeah. then feel even worse the next day, which yeah. is, it's because of those bad vibes you get in from, from other places that, that kind of knock you off. So understanding your own value and, and also the things that you resonate with the most. It's such a such a big advantage, but it only comes with experience of of trying a few things and failing and, you know, maybe getting things wrong or whatever. And then your sense, well, sorry, my sense of uh, where I could be more valuable had really sharpened up. Um, and it meant that when I was approaching clients, I had a lot more 
um, purpose and meaning behind the work that I was doing, which allowed everybody to benefit from that. Yeah. So, so that took you a few years to learn and figure out, which I'm not surprised by, because I think that, um, you know, we all have to go through those processes ourselves. Like you can get all the advice in the world from people on this. And I think you can maybe cut the timeline down a little bit, but at the end of the day, sometimes you just got to go through the process and learn the hard lessons firsthand to figure that out for yourself. Um, so I, the, I think that I think most people will, will, will only need to learn those hard lessons once. Really? Um, especially especially <laughs> when you're self-employed because <laughs> I, 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 it really sticks. Um, you know, I, I think that when you're working in a big corporate environment, you know, and I only think about this on, on retrospect. I mean, I, I dread to think the amount of times that I was, um, what's, the, what's the best word for it, like protected um, as part of a team effort, you ah. know. And, and when you're self-employed and it's just you, you're hearing <laughs> the hard facts. You know, you are hearing the hard facts and it's personal because it's just you, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. It, but, but with that comes, a, comes a, a level of experience that although you could probably shorten the timeline, I think the depth of meaning with those lessons means that, you know, your, your internal guidance for, for the future becomes so much better. Yeah. Well, uh, I think every, I agree with everything you say for me personally, those, some of those hard lessons, man, I have learned them more than once. So your, your track record is, is, uh, crushing mine. (laughs) Um, well, it's probably different though, Heidi, because I, I struggle sometimes with, um, uh, some of the personal impact that what I've pursued has on like what? other relationships and, and oh, all that sort of thing. So, okay. you know, look, it's, it's, it, I think it's, just, uh, I think it's different for every practitioner. Sure. Um, you know, and I, I'm, I, I think that as soon as you're scared to make the mistakes, um, it's time to do something else because the mistakes are where you learn. Yeah, for sure. They are. They absolutely are. Um, okay, so it took a couple years to kind of build up your freelancing career to where you like felt like you were strategic on taking the right projects and and you know obviously nothing is ever going perfect, but you were much further along than you were at the beginning. And and from the get go, do you just quit your job and you kickstarted freelancing? And were you able to supplement enough of an income to support yourself? And then you said also maybe put some money aside to launch your own brand. Um. <laughs> this is another installment of uh, reckless entrepreneurship. <laughs> okay, so let's hear it. I'm I, excited. Yeah, yeah. So I quit my job uh, with a month's notice, uh, zero savings, zero clients, um, and it just had to work. It, you know, I, I I had to make it work. Um, looking back, that was you know pretty pretty reckless. Um, I would advise that people don't do that because it's pretty silly. Um, and for me, it gave me a drive that I knew that I had to back myself to, to do the work, to put the effort in, um, to be able to sustain myself. And I'm not saying that I needed the fear factor because I didn't, because I think it's scary enough anyway. But I think what I needed to do was was find what I wanted to do. Um, and that was the more important kind of spiritual almost fundamental part of of what I'd you know what I'd got to is a point where anything was better than what I was doing um and and I needed that um sense of adventure and that sort of you know right well it's now or never 
to, to, to really kick me kick me on um, and to be able to be brave enough to to kind of get going really. And so was that fear factor like it, it I mean I, apparently it worked enough that you're you're here and you made it um yeah yeah I think I've been really lucky in my um in my kind of upbringing to have quite a high like um high discipline when it comes to uh, actual working hours and and being productive and uh, yeah. holding myself accountable yeah um and that's come from you know, lots of people have got lots of different examples to which they work, but um, and lots of different inspiration. But but for me, it was almost a, a bit of character, really, that had always just been there. You know, just that ability to to have the discipline to work, and you know, even if it was uh, seemingly felt, you know, very fruitless, or you know, my God, I'm I'm looking forward to when somebody you know takes me on or whatever. I just had the faith that it was going to work out. You know, it, it had to work out. <laughs> so I had to make it work out, you know? Yeah. Okay, so um, you made it work out, learned a lot of lessons, got halfway through, or not halfway through, but halfway through based on where you're at now, two and a half years into your currently now five years of freelancing. Um, and in the meantime, on the side, you're starting to get stuff together for your, your brand called Both Barrels. Um, tell yep. us, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what were you doing on the side? Where did that all start? What was your vision? And, and how do you do initiate sort of like kickstarting that while you're also freelancing? Cause I know that's a position a lot of people are in either they're freelancing or they're working in a full-time job and they're also trying to do their own thing as like a side hustle. So that's exactly what you did. What did it look like? Uh, yeah, it looks. Um, I don't, I, I, it's hard to describe what it looked like because what it felt like was this is ridiculous. You know? <laughs> um, you know, this is this is like already difficult, and then I'm trying to make it more difficult. But I guess the the reality of it was that I knew that I wanted to create something that was um, born out of my uh, past and my skills and and kind of my. Uh, pedigree if you like as a, as a designer within some established brands and some bigger environments but I also felt that I wanted to you know put my own design philosophy in there which which goes all the way back to my background as a as a product designer as a student which is you know to do with quality and function and you know amazing materials and, and craftsmanship and, and all that sort of thing so it was quite a slow process um, in terms of you know putting 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 factory meetings in, everything that I do is made in the UK, uh, which is a, a decision that I took very early on in the business because I wanted to keep um, quantities very low and very manageable from a stock perspective. Um, I also wanted to protect myself from currency fluctuations that were you know likely to be part of overseas trade, um, and I also wanted to kind of uh, bring back a bit of what. Um, a British brand that was design-led could be that was a little bit different to what's maybe been been out there in the past and lots of the heritage brands are kind of doing an amazing job of stuff that looks like a heritage brand but I wanted what what we produced to look a lot more like uh, uh, inspired by Danish and Japanese philosophy and, and be a bit more reflective of a multicultural society that we have here in the UK. Ah, interesting. Um, so, so the way it was sort of put together was 
um, I mean, I was starting with a with an advantage, which was I could speak the language that the factories could speak. Um, and that's not just to say that it was English, but I was talking in production terms. I turned up with swatches of materials. I turned up with set packs. I turned up with, you know, abilities to, to make patterns and, you know, kind of make their job easier because um, that's that's kind of my biggest tip for people looking to produce is to try to really make that job as simple as possible for your factory partner, wherever they're based, whatever, yeah. their, whatever their skill is. Yeah. You, you've got to really make it easy for them because at the early stage of your business, even though you and your mum think it's like an amazing thing, the factory guy is going, this is really a pain, really a pain <laughs> for me. Um, so you have to, you know, you have to kind of say, okay, guys, let's, you know, let's try and make it easy. And um, I guess doing a lot of that sort of groundwork, you know, really helped to get those partners on board um, because if they take you seriously, you are much more likely to be able to get something going um, and even that's even just to get to a sample stage so so as you're freelancing on the side or no you're freelancing and then on the side you're you're putting these designs together and you're starting to meet with factories and and trying to get to the first sample stage that sounds like that was kind of your first step it was absolutely that yeah okay and how long did that whole process take? Because I want to kind of put this into perspective for people. So from, let's say from the time you like first started sketching to the time you had your first sample, like even if it's like a super rough prototype in hand, uh, what what was that timeline? Uh, I think I think it was between eight and nine months. Okay, so not too bad. It's not too bad. But, I don't think so, no. Well, it was... Um, there was a lot of uh, legwork that had gone on uh, and a lot of prompting and a lot of reminding and a lot of, um, I guess, account management uh, with, with, with the sort of the, the factory partner. I think it then took, you know, a good a good period after that to, to get, you know, proper proper kind of production ready um and then in the meantime whilst that was whilst that physical product was running in the background the 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 website and the the digital side of the business was being established as well um so maybe because the two processes were sort of concurrent it felt like it took forever because neither of them were getting into shape very quickly (laughs) <laughs> it just takes a long time but if you're going to build something my, I guess my advice or my take out from it is that if you're going to build something it's worth taking the time to build it right rather than build it fast yeah 100% agree so had you like did you do any market research or customer research to understand you know what it exactly was going to be that you were going to design and create for both barrels the name of your brand um to make sure that you were like filling a need in the market or did you just have this idea and you thought this is something that I personally want or how did you really what what drove the design I mean I know you said in the UK there's a lot of heritage brands and you wanted to do something that had some more 
multicultural influence with Danish and Japanese and stuff like that. But outside of that, um, what did you do to sort of think about how is this product going to be received? Do other people actually want this? Yeah, there was quite a bit of personal work went on with with the previous years of experience um, as a business traveler. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the brand vision was born out of uh, business travel um, and and sort of producing something that was stylish, functional, and sort of fitting with uh, with a with a sort of a I guess over over in the UK there, there's so much more business travel now than there ever used to be. Um, with people, you know, working from home or working remotely, but also needing to, you know, be able to almost flip the switch between sort of smart and casual. Um, and I guess I'd, I'd been so sort of frustrated through personal experience of being handed a, uh, a piece of equipment from uh, an IT department that just, I mean, it looked like I was on like an under-14s, football slash soccer trip i know um, exactly the you bag get, you're talking about yeah i mean i mean um so so they they're tricky for me to to kind of deal with and, and i knew that you know i had the the skills and and some background experience to be able to to kind of step in and say there, there is an alternative you know it is possible to be functional and stylish and not look like a teenage mutant ninja turtle um <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that, that's the thing. You've got people earning, you know, amazing reputations through their endeavors that, that they, you know, that they put their hours into in terms of business. But they're, they're being sent out looking like, you know, some sort of forgotten afterthought. And and for me, it was, it was also a bit of a connection to the fact that people were living uh, multifaceted 24-hour lifestyles where, you know, a bag that you take to work also also has to handle your gym kit or your yoga class stuff. Or, um, you know, people are people are doing a lot more now. You know, kind of either before or after work um, as part of their lifestyle. Um, and rather than having six bags and you know lots of different things, it was it was more of a case of saying, okay, how do we how do we minimise here and and kind of you know do something that fits in a in a gym locker but also fits in a boardroom yeah yeah no i totally understand the the need for that multifaceted solution so um okay so you had personally experienced and seen the need for this you spend a lot of time while you're also freelancing to fund your life as well as help fund the brand did you did was everything funded through your savings and the money that you earned through your freelancing career Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you so self-funded I, everything. I've not. I've, yeah. So I've not taken on any um, investment. I've not taken on any financing um, at all. It's just been personally kind of um, what's the word staked? I suppose that's yeah. probably not the financial word, but it feels <laughs> like it because it's it's pretty much a gamble, isn't it? When yeah. when you uh, when you're doing this, but I think in the future, um, now that I know what I know. I'd be much more able to stand with much more confidence to ask for, you know, a, a level of investment or a or a level of support, either financially or through uh, kind of the, the mentoring that's available through certain investment routes that I now would know what I would be asking for, if that makes sense. I think people get a bit carried away with the prospect of investment, that it's some sort of 
necessary thing. And, and actually, until you know what you're going to do with that money and where it's going to go and what it's going to return, it's much better to just go about things in the old-fashioned way and, you know, find out, you know, go and put your hand in the fire and see how hot it is. <laughs> yeah, and, like, see where those expenses actually are because I think it can feel really easy. I think this is what you're saying, how I'm interpreting it is, oh, I need $20,000 to start this thing. But in reality, like, how much have you hashed that out? Where What's every line item where every penny of that $20,000 is going to go? And, like, why do you need each of those investments versus – starting to kickstart things on your own with your own savings and figuring out like where the money actually goes. Is that what you're saying? Completely. And, okay. and I guess that's, that's such a better way of putting it, Heidi. And, and that's why you're on your end of it and I'm on my end of it. But <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> hey, it's, um, it's also that I think when you're in a situation of uh, considering investment, I think somebody who's going to, who's going to uh, contribute, uh, $20,000 to your business also probably wants to know why you haven't put your $20,000 on the table. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, an old fashioned thing, but I think if you've got that skin in the game to say, you know, this is what I've contributed to this vision. This is what I believe in. This is my personal commitment to it. Um, you know, people, you know, don't take a wage out of a business for, you know, three to five years. And, you know, because it's all about, you know, watering the plants that that you want to grow um and 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 i I suppose that a lot of us are are being influenced by you know lots of these overnight successes but as far as i as far as i can see nobody is an overnight success it takes years of very diligent hard work and, and lots of personal development along that process as well yeah, I always like to quote the iceberg theory. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but like where what you see on top of the water is like this small portion of iceberg, You but you only see like 10 or 20% of it and that's the success, right? But underneath you have this whole foundation, which is the past 5, 10, 20 years of trial and error and determination and failure and all the stuff that it took to build up to create that like 10% that peaks out from the top. Absolutely spot on. Yeah, yeah. that's not my and an now that's not my thing. The iceberg theory is like a an, an, a thing. I don't know who coined it, but it's it's a thing that I just I, I swipe often. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just such a great visual though, and that's true for like any story in life. And and fortunately here on on the podcast, you know, I I really push to get the the guest to open up about the whole backstory of where things came from because nothing is an overnight success. It can look like that on paper, but that's never the reality. Um, so you said that you in tandem were, were developing the product while also creating a website presence, um, online store, I imagine some social media, obviously that comes with photography and content. Like it, 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 there's so many little moving pieces and parts to get that all together. Um, as you were going through all of that, what was your plan for marketing and distributing your product? Was it wholesale, direct to consumer, um, a little bit of both, or how were you thinking about selling this your your bags your luggage and your accessories that you you've created yeah i think the the initial the initial strategy was to have a website and sort of say oh, i've made a website now so can everyone <laughs> just buy this yeah um and it and it turns out loads of people have also got websites yes it um, does and also 
And also loads of other people have got really nice bags and they've got really nice accessories. And there's also really big brands who uh, their brand isn't maybe a bags or an accessories company, but the access point to the brand. So I'm thinking about the really, really big fashion brands. Um, they make a bag and people buy that bag because they buy the brand, right? So I'm like, oh man, this is difficult. Um, so the, the, the Canada, the, the start of it was very experimental, which was, you know, I, I like the idea of the online business because it was easier to, to fulfill that from a, you know, an order comes in, I pick and pack the stock and ship it out and the customer gets the order and that's brilliant because it's a, a, a conversation with that customer directly. I'd also had aspirations to get into the wholesale channels through retailers. However, the markups that you have to sort of uh, factor in just made it so difficult to to think that that was ever going to be a viable option with the with the level of product, with the level of like meticulous craftsmanship. And I also found that people wanted to know a lot more about my backstory. Uh, about the vision, about design, about, you know, what British brands could be. So over a period of time and, and after some spectacular fails at, at things like trade shows um, that are very, very expensive and, you know, they're very costly in terms of both time and money and uh, energy, uh, especially when it isn't right. It costs a lot to find out when it's wrong. Yeah. Um, or it cost, me, it cost me a lot to find out that it wasn't the right thing to do anyway. Um it was, you know, a case of just focusing and, and being more, uh, I guess, old school. And, and for me, I have a regular sort of seasonal pitch at a local market, which means um, people can come and talk to me and I guess they can give me feedback on products or they might say, you know, could you do this in this colour or could you, or what about building this in this way? And actually, I really like that it's quite small and quite uh, boutique almost, Um and that gives me a, a great advantage in terms of uh, having a direct relationship with customers, but also being um, almost using the marketing as um, product development as well. Yeah. So how, how did you apply that? So there's plenty of people who've got amazing ideas, um, but they don't have the vehicle that, perhaps some of the creative people have. So it's been amazing to kind of uh, talk to people about, you know, uh, they've always wanted to do this, that or the other. And actually both barrels can provide that as a product to them, um, which is something that's exciting that might be happening uh, in 2020. So, yeah, it's, I guess it's just almost understanding as quickly as possible which playgrounds that you can't be in um, and then moving away from them and, and finding the ones that, you know, you've got an audience in and, and you can do stuff. And without having a massive budget for digital marketing and, and all the other things that go along with that in terms of um, uh, SEO and, and kind of pay-per-click things and all this kind of invisible world that, that to me is just a constant discovery that I'm uh, well supported on by a, a couple of friends who run a digital marketing agency. So they, they look after the website um, and, and there will be like more of a digital strategy next year to complement the physical strategy. But that's only now able to take place now that I know what I'm doing. 
Yeah. So it was like, like you said, it was just trial and error to figure out, okay, this trade show thing's not working for me. And arguably the wholesale thing in its own right was just, I mean, because you wind up having to like almost more than quadruple the price from like your price point to the time it gets to what you pay to get it out of the factory to the time what the customer pays on the shelf. I mean, it, it just goes up so quickly. Um, so learning that that was maybe not going to be the best route and then figuring out, okay, some of these in-person events. I imagine, like, you said something you have a pitch at a, a regular ongoing thing. I'm not, I'm not sure I quite understood what that was. Is it some type of, like, ongoing pop-up shop where you're always at with your product and you're interacting with customers and potential customers? Yeah, that's right. So okay. it's, 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 it's in Manchester. Okay. And um, that, that's obviously where the brand is from, where I'm from, and where, you know, I, I kind of talk a lot about um, where the product is from and, and the kind of the story really um, and that also means that I think something to, to bear in mind for people who uh, are looking to, to kind of uh, have some sort of e-com uh, business unless you've got that budget to spend you know uh, I don't know fifty fifty thousand dollars a month on promoting it purely online it's a lot um, it's a lot um, and it's also kind of the both barrels project has got a lot more soul and, and it needs the people to be connected with the, the physical tactility of the product, um, which is very difficult to, to communicate digitally with a website or whatever else. So I think having that physical pop-up shop and the, and the experience there where everything is there and, you know, you can ask questions and, uh, touch and feel and kind of experiment and adjust and try things off it's it is very old school but it's it it, it, it fits really well with um what i can see as being um almost a return to traditional techniques of, of marketing yeah no i think there's so much truth in that and i've actually um in an earlier episode, we will link to this in the show notes, um, I interviewed a guy who makes clothes for specifically for short guys, like guys under 5'4", and he spent a lot of money on digital ads, like Facebook ads and Google ads, and it totally flopped. And yeah. he came back to the exact thing you're talking about, the old school of like, okay, well, let me go set up my booth and like do pop-up shops and get out there in front of the customer in real life. And I think, you know, you said it earlier, you're like, oh, look, I've got a website, but everybody has a website, right? We have Shopify. We have all these tools that make it so easy. And so it can come back to like, okay, how do I physically get in front of the customer and show them and talk to them and share the story and explain to them in person why my product is so special I think you can grow into that online space, but I, I I do think you're right in that where we are nowadays, digital is becoming so overrun and crowded that you have to go back to that old school and kickstart with that face-to-face experience. I think the uh, I, I couldn't agree more, and and the guy with the with the pants for the short guys. I mean, what what he's looking for, what I would imagine, is something similar to me, which is. It's a it's quality over quantity. Yes, for sure. Customer, because I can't make ten thousand bags. I can just make a small quantity of exceptionally good ones. Yeah, and and I, and it's quality rather than, 
you know, uh, quantity. Um, and, and quite often, the, you know, a, a brilliant crossover with the, uh, with, the, with the pants business is that those, those customers are very likely to return to, to that service and that product because it, it's for them. It's 100% for them. It's not someone else's pants. They're pants that are tailored for a short guy, right? Yeah, so that's yeah, perfect. yeah. Very niche, yeah. So, and it's great because, it, and, uh, you know, as soon as, as, as his demographic in, in the same way that my demographic is being more clearly defined, um, and an interesting takeout is that lots of, lots of what I've seen in terms of the, the statistics that I've seen, particularly on social media for, for both barrels, has been that the audience is actually slightly bigger for females looking for stuff for their uh, male partner. Oh. So there's this really weird thing that goes on that I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't predicting this at all. Um, but this is something to consider, you know, and that's a, that's a brilliant thing about data is that it can, it can bring you those things, but then equally face-to-face conversations and, and being able to connect people up to things is, is a really nice way to do things as well. Yeah. 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 Very true. Very true. Um, it's so interesting, all the little insights that you find out, like once you, like some of the stuff, I mean, you can do all the customer research in the world or all the market research or, you know, whatever, but some of the stuff like you're just going to learn in real time as it happens, all these little nuances of how the brand winds up going this other direction that you never really thought about. Um, I imagine you've had a lot of those insights. Sure. And I think that being open to those things is, is absolutely critical yeah. to, uh, to not just like starting a business, but sustaining something that evolves and changes and, and kind of um, is in line with, with what your customer is actually saying, uh, rather than feeling like, okay, well, I made this thing and I won't accept any other version of it than the one that I wanted. Well, I think that's what I would describe as more like a hobby rather than a business. Yeah. Um, and I, and I guess that's the thing where you have to um, really be uh, very rooted in a in a, a kind of a humble approach to feedback, and you know you might get some unexpected results from people, but that is all positive if you can get your head into a situation that you're open to that feedback. So I think yeah, I think the the, the cleverest. Um, the cleverest businesses that I've, I've kind of worked with and seen are the ones who are most connected to their customer and their community and they're most able to react to their their demands and their changes. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, just to put it like really brash, it's not about what you want. Who cares what you want? At the end of the day, it's about what your customer wants <laughs> right, and what your customer's exactly. willing to pay for. <laughs> so it's exactly that. And, and, yeah. and, and that's the, I guess that's the thing that, that, that probably um, unites and, and sort of um, brings together lots of the business community is that um, we're all, you know, we are all customers of everybody else and equally like we are not our own customer. So it's, it's a strange thing and, and it's a brilliant thing and it, it really challenges you um, in terms of, you know, I think, I think to, to move into a more empathic space with your customer uh, to understand what their needs are on an ongoing basis rather than saying, oh, but last season we said that this color was nice. So why are you saying that this season this color isn't nice? You know, well, they can change their mind. They're a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. You can change your mind. Yeah. 
So can I ask, um, and again, at the time of recording, because this will be aired later than, than the date we're recording. Um, so it's November 2019. Uh, three year, year, it's your three-year anniversary since you launched, because you said you launched both barrels in November 2016. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Congrats. Three years. That's amazing. So, um, <laughs> it feels like 60. <laughs> 60. Wow. Yeah, One I'm, year's equal to 20. I'm, That's like more than dog years. <laughs> it sure is. I mean, it's, I mean, I look terrible. For, oh, for, uh, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really do. Um, but that's okay. So can I ask, um, you mentioned earlier uh, a brand can take about three to five years to build before you yourself as a brand owner are actually taking a paycheck and, and things maybe, possibly, hopefully become profitable. Um, you don't need to share any exact numbers, um, although you're welcome to if you want, but um, where's the business at now three years after launch? Are, are you turning some type of profit? Are you taking a little bit of a paycheck? Or um, It sounds like you're still freelancing and, and kind of funding it that way. Or, you know, what would you share with people in terms of the, the financial timeline of, of where you started and where you're at now? Yeah, it's, it's so three years in, the business is, is looking like it's going to be the leanest it'll, it'll be um, in terms of um, cost out. Um, next year, so that's great. So that's a that's a big thing. Is that I'm not going to be continuing to pile loads of my own money in because I've I've learned so much in the last three years or well, four years in terms of you know the development time and the and the period there. So because I now I'm not in the the phase of like experimenting with different things, I'm much more able to to limit the cost out, which means that the profitability. Uh, will increase in terms of the timeline of that happening. Yeah. At the moment, that isn't the case in terms of, you know, I'm still counting the cost of setting up a business. Okay. Um, but what but what I am doing is promoting a brand that has existed for three years. I've had uh, zero product returns in that time. Wow. Um, I'm talk- yeah, I'm talking about a story that is built on quality and that's what it does. I've got repeating customers um, and I'm also at a point where, um, because I now know a bit more about the financial demands and, you know, to put it bluntly, the time demands that it that it takes from me, I can hopefully return to um, either a full-time job or a, a sort of a, you know, a, a retainer contract or something with freelance, because I know <laughs> sort of to the, to the T now how much time and how much money the next year is going to take which allows me to live a little bit more. Yeah, it's hard to balance that with so many unknowns those first <coughs> couple of years. It's also, I think that the the difficult part is that having the discipline about what's a good opportunity and what's a bad opportunity in the first few years, you just have to remain like very flexible to everything, which is terrible for you know, having a social life or, you know, being able to do things or go on holiday. I think this will be year seven now without a holiday. Oh, my um, gosh. Which is, which is not great. You know, that is not a cool <laughs> thing. And that is definitely at the bottom of the iceberg. Um, so it's, it's tough. But equally, other people deal with other pressures. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a very personal journey. And, and for me, the, 
the the learnings that have gone around you know financial planning and all that sort of thing have been very new experiences in terms of you know in a design department you don't get to see the budget you just get told make it look nice make it look nice make the logo bigger make it look nice that's it you know so it's 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 kind of brutal when you get into this world where people talk a different language you know and and they they also charge you a lot of money for the privilege yeah well i appreciate you being so open about that and that i mean at the end of the day it does it take any many most businesses take a few years at least to turn a profit um, because that's just what it takes to set up and to you know build the following and to build the inventory and to get the word out there and to like figure out the nuances of the market and what's going to sell like you said and then having that flexibility as a business owner to react to the customer demand and response um that just it doesn't happen overnight i think the other it's absolutely correct and one piece of advice that I would give people looking to um, looking to take this on, and, and definitely if you're not approaching it from a financial background point of view, is that I've benefited massively from from having a partnership uh, with a, with a reputable accountant. They really helped me to understand that yes, it does take three to five years. Yeah. Yes, it is going to be very painful. Yes, you are going to have to contribute your own money. Yes, it's going to feel you know difficult but those accountancy people can really help you to understand that you know you know you're not doing it alone um and also they are able to after this period of time now they're able to help uh set the business up based on you know what the numbers really look like you know so i i would really recommend that to people who are particularly if you're approaching things from a design point of view and you don't have that um, that financial background it's a really good partnership to, to put in place yeah that's a great piece of advice thank you for sharing that I think it's really easy to overlook that or to feel like oh I, it's accounting I mean I'll just keep a spreadsheet or I don't know I'll just figure it out at the end of the year but I think that and it can feel like oh that's just another expense but it could be a priceless one because I think in the long run it'll save you more money than it actually costs I, I couldn't agree more I, th- I think it's also that if you're a business owner and you can take away a problem, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, it's one less thing to worry about. Those guys, you know, just talking from my own experience, that, you know, the the, the, the way that they keep up to date with, uh, this is just talking about the UK rather than the US, um, but in the UK, legislations change, you know, uh, people who are producing goods in the UK are being incentivized a little bit more and, you know, it's, it then means that if your accounting side is is squeaky clean in terms of you know you've done everything by the book and you've paid your dues and you've done everything right, it means that when you do look for that investment or that investor, they're looking back on an immaculate set of financial records. Yeah. Even if it's showing a loss, it's immaculate. And that shows that you are taking the business side of things very, very seriously, which I, which has a tremendous amount of weight when it comes to investors. Like they, you know, some of them may care more or less about the actual product um, and the the little design details that, you know, we can nerd out on so much. But at the end of the day, they're looking at it from a financial business investment. And yes, the product matters, but how well are you running this business? And like you said, having those really clean, organized books is proof of that i think so and and i would really recommend that people um 
consider it because it it can feel really um <laughs> this is no offense to anybody from an accounting background <laughs> but they don't have the most exciting reputation um especially when you turn up and you're a designer and they're like oh my god so you're intimidated by them yeah. they're intimidated by you yeah. they wish they put their better suit on or they'd clean their shoes or they whatever and you wish that you knew what the hell they were talking about yeah. but between you you can make a great partnership that that makes business sense uh, and that's the most important point yeah yeah very 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 good point well matt this has been amazing to chat and hear about all the stuff you've done in your extensive career over the last 60 years <laughs> um oh man <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, where can everybody connect with you online, whether that's personally and as well as uh, your brand, um, and just to look at all the awesome stuff that you're making with Both Barrels? Yeah, the Both Barrels stuff is, um, the website is uh, thisisbothbarrels.com. Okay. Um, and that's supported by Instagram, which is at both.barrels. Um, and then if anyone wants to talk about stuff on LinkedIn, there's a LinkedIn page as well. Weirdly, we've got, even though LinkedIn's maybe not the most glamorous of communities, we get amazing engagement there because oh, cool. a lot of the, a, a lot of the both barrels projects talks about business in terms of business travel, oh. but we also share a lot of the story about business development too. So it's a, it's kind of a surprising space. Um, and, and, and I guess that's the part that, I've been able to concentrate a bit more on and, and kind of tailor the content to. And, and then that generates people sharing things and connecting us up that way. It's great. Yeah, that's super interesting. You're the first guest I've heard that from as far as like, you know, I've heard of obviously networking for freelance and job opportunities on LinkedIn. That's kind of what we think about it for, but never having success with their own brand on LinkedIn. So that's really, really cool. We will link to all of that in the show notes um, so people can connect with you. And I will love Thanks. to... Of course. I would love to end with the question I ask everybody at the end of the interview, and that is, what is one thing you wish people asked you about working in fashion, but they never do? Oh, good question. Oh, I, I think it's probably uh, people never ask why it's so difficult to get to the final solution that ah. you present to them. And they say, I could have done that. Yeah. Um, but they're not going to wait around for the reasons that they couldn't have done that because you're showing them a final product or a final thing that's taken months of refinement and they look, they're looking at the end <laughs> um, and they don't know how much coffee you've drunk and how much you've cried. <laughs> and that you've been laboring over <laughs> for 60 years. <laughs> right. And there's no Pantone chip that matches the exact color you need and your supplier is saying, I need it in coated reference. You know, all and you're like, no, really... make it this color. I found this scrap of yarn. <laughs> <laughs> there's no right, pantone exactly. yeah 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 i know exactly the, i know exactly the story oh my gosh and nobody cares nobody cares so um but we all care like in the community we all care and we all say man this is really difficult but like i'm thinking about the people that i know and you know the the people that i play football with and all that sort of thing they yeah. don't care yeah. so um and i love them for that you know they don't care so it's um, yeah. It, it helps you get over yourself a bit as well because we, we're in a massive industry with a with a big reach, but you know, being connected to real life is a really important thing because that's what uh, fashion and 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 I guess 
you know, functional things, but it's all for people living real lives. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was a great answer. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been really, really amazing chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much, Matt. And thank you to you for listening. It is so appreciated. Uh, A quick announcement uh, before we wrap up is that SFD is way more than a podcast. And I would love to share all of those resources with you. I have tons of templates and tutorials and free stuff to help you get ahead in your fashion career. And the best way to do that is to head on over to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. That is all linked in the show notes, but that's the best way to get access to all of my free stuff. You can also follow me on Instagram at soheidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. Um, and one last request, if you do enjoy the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, we work very hard to put out an exceptional show and to really pull back the curtain and to help you get ahead in your fashion career. And one of the best things you can do for us is to leave a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts if you think we deserve one. We are super, super appreciative of that. So take a few seconds and do that for us, and we will thank you eternally. Um, As always, you can scroll down to check out the show notes and any of the resources mentioned in the episode. Um, And I do always like to give a quick shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all the tech and the editing behind the scenes and makes sure that the show sounds good in your earbuds. Thank you to Mark, as well as my right-hand woman, Tara, who helps with scheduling and publishing and getting everything out to you. So a podcast is a very big living and breathing thing to produce and put out. And I owe a lot of thanks to both Tara and Mark for helping uh, successful fashion designer get this show out and into your ears so thank you so much as well as thank you to you for listening we would not be here without you and uh, with that said I will sign off and I'll talk to you in the next episode of the successful fashion designer podcast <laughs>